This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and Law.com. Welcome to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ed Alera. We're delighted on behalf of Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney to welcome a dear friend of mine personally and the firm's. Francesco Tellerico. I've had the good fortune of working with him for most of his adult legal career. He's grown from M&A transactional lawyer to a general counsel of a publicly traded international pharmaceutical firm. Also joining me today conducting the interview will be Matt Fedowitz, a fellow shareholder in our FDA life sciences practice. Good afternoon. Nice to see you again. The company you work with now, Francesco, uh, Covis is an international global pharmaceutical company that has a presence everywhere. But I've known you for many years and you've really grown into that role. And how'd you wind up there? So my first role uh, as an internal counsel, um, I joined a company and was kind of swimming in the deep end with a water wings, was asked to do a number of different things. But as you mentioned in the intro, um, was primarily an M&A attorney. And so uh, shortly after joining Concordia, which was my first role, uh, we started to look at a portfolio of assets owned by a group called Covis Pharma. And uh, it was the largest uh, transaction that Concordia had uh, been looking at to date. And we ended up entering into a definitive agreement with Covis, uh, which was at the time, a portfolio company of Cerberus, um, so a New York-based private equity firm. And during that process, um, I was negotiating on the other side of the Cobus management team, um, including the current CEO, Michael Porter. And, uh, you know, Michael and I just hit it off, given, I think, very similar work ethics, um, very commercially mindsetted, entrepreneurial kind of spirits, Um and, you know, through that process, developed a relationship with Michael and uh, kept in touch with him while I was at Concordia and post leaving Concordia um, and obviously had conversations with Michael. And he'll tell you to date, even during my time at Concordia, where post acquisition, there were things that came up uh, based on the relationship, some of which were not easy conversations to have. But we always found a, a mutual understanding on how to work through them, being professionals about it. And so when the opportunity arose with um, Covis being sold to Apollo Capital Management uh, last year in 2000, I should say in 2019, uh, which closed in 2020, uh, Michael approached me as he was building out his executive team uh, as they were looking for an in-house GC. That's quite a um, personal relationship. Professionally, how did your roles change? In Because uh, you've worked for there and then you've done cannabis. You've done a lot of different stuff. I can tell you, I think coming back to it, being a transactional lawyer uh, and, you know, I worked at a, at, a, at a private practice on Bay Street in Toronto. So, um, and I think we'll probably talk about this a bit, but located in Canada. And so worked for a large uh, multinational law firm. And oftentimes when you're working for uh, in private practice, you're, you're normally pigeonholed into a particular practice area. So I practiced corporate securities work, public M&A, private M&A, and was just a, a corporate transactional lawyer. Um, but having said that, had some exposure to litigation, um, but never thought, you know, like litigation was not something I was particularly interested in, kind of stayed away with away from it, like the, the black, <laughs> the, the plague um, during my time at Baskins. 
when I joined Concordia, you know, one of the first things I was, I, I was in receipt of was um, litigation matters. And, you know, some of the things, and I remember looking at it being like, I have no idea what this is even about. I don't even know how to approach this. And so you're required to, I guess, one big thing is you're required to lean on external counsel, such as Buchanan, particularly when it relates to, you know, very unique bespoke life sciences matters, because that's, you know, what I would say you guys have been, you know, instrumental in supporting me with, but you learn how to lean on external counsel, but at the same time, you have an obligation to your, to your client, which is your, your company, one around budgeting and cost, and most importantly, ensuring that the strategic you know, path you're taking is the most appropriate for the company from a risk tolerance perspective. And so learning that quickly, getting, you know, putting on a commercial hat uh, and making decisions that had legal overtones was, was a, a learning experience for me, um, but has obviously, you know, helped me. Um, you know, Concordia was quite the roller coaster ride. You know, we went from a company that was, you know, six products making about, you know, I would say it was, you know, $50 million in EBITDA to at its peak, you know, over a billion dollars in revenue to $600 million in EBITDA with over 200 products in, in over 90 countries where we were originally focused just on the U.S. And, and you know, having to, in a four-year time frame, going through that and then going through a corporate restructuring at the same time, you know, at the end of that, that um, journey, you just, you pick up so much. And I, I would say I'm grateful for the experiences that I've had because I wouldn't have had them in private practice. I wouldn't have been exposed to different that areas. Great right here because you, like you said, you've had a roller coaster ride. You've done it all at a young age. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm probably look younger than I am, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm fairly young. I mean, the, the, the thing about the Covis management team, it's a fairly young team, um, but guys that have had tremendous amount of experience um, just, you know, being in private equity or being in, 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 uh, in industry, um, the team is fairly young, but the experiences that they have, and like I say to people is, you, you know, you could be 70 years old and not have the same experiences as someone that's in their forties. And that's just, you know, in the four years at Concordia, the year that I've been here at Cobus, I could tell you the year and a half that I spent in cannabis and things that I had to deal with there. Um, you know, it's probably 30 years of experience, just given the amount of uh, the different um, things that I, I was required to deal with. Sure. Francesco, a moment ago, you mentioned how Cobus was acquired by Apollo Management Group. Um, can you take us through that M&A process? Yeah, so um, I was not part of the management team on uh, that was involved in the acquisition by Apollo. But I mean, just generally, I can tell you because I've been through LBO processes before, um, you know, or, or uh, an M&A transaction where you're the target. And so my understanding is, you know, at the time, Covis was involved in a sale process. Um, they were talking to a variety of different, you know, whether they were strategic, um, um, strategic partners and or private equity. The decision was made to, to obviously sell the company from Cerberus to Apollo based on the return for investments uh, for, for their investors, which they felt, felt was in the best interest for their investors at the time. Um, the one thing that we were highly focused on at Apollo when I was engaged, because it was shortly after the acquisition by Apollo, um, was looking, you know, we went through the M&A process. They were acquired, you know, it requires diligence and it requires a, a substantial amount of negotiating around uh, contractual terms. Um, so it's a, a very complex process, particularly where you're involved in multiple jurisdictions. And so you have the interplay of, of regulatory re uh, review in, in multiple jurisdictions. Uh, but one thing that we recognized was that 
Apollo was, you know, willing to put a significant amount of capital behind the company to continue to develop our, our pipeline and our products. Um, and so that was something that was very attractive to the management team and myself as I was joining. And so, um, you know, although you face challenges, and we'll talk probably about that a little bit uh, in this industry, just just naturally as being a part of a, of a pharma industry, just generally, um, you know, the one thing is that we have a strong sponsor that is um, very confident in the management team's capabilities. And so we're just trying to take the strategic direction that we have and use the capital that they've de- that they put behind us to deploy it, um, and ensure that we're we're not only protecting um, you know our stakeholders just generally, but making products available to patients uh, as well and to physicians and clinicians. Yeah, it sounds like there were certainly some challenges there. Can you give us some examples of lessons learned through that process? Yeah, I mean, so you know. I, Oftentimes people ask me, like, what's it like working in private equity, right? I mean, this is really my first, uh, I would say not my first interaction with private equity because I was on the other side of private equity, you know, negotiating with them. Um, But I've never been on on the private equity side. And so in a public company setting, you know, oftentimes the management team is really driving the business. Um, Not to say that that's not the case in private equity, but you have a board, a public company board. And, you know, like you, you meet with that public company board every quarter, maybe a little bit more if there's something material going on, but they're not as involved in the business, right? They're just, it, they, they, it's more, much more of an oversight role and have more interactions with the, the CEO. Um, and so like my experiences being in two public companies before joining Cobus were exactly that, right? Where there's much more, you know, I would say um, autonomy, um, the, the, the board is less involved because they're just kind of an oversight body, um, you know, taking into account the best interests of shareholders, primarily when you're a public company in a private company setting, the good thing that what, what I've really enjoyed is that Apollo has been side by side with us in everything that we do, uh, whether, you know, we, we acquired AMEG pharmaceuticals back in November of 2020, we were looking at some other assets, which you guys were involved in reviewing as well. And so, as you guys probably have experienced, they are involved in the diligence and the M&A process as much as we are as a management team. So it's a nice, what I would say is a nice, um, um, in my, what I would say is it's kind of a nice uh, attribute in the sense of having the ability to bounce things off of a a sponsor that has gone through several M&A processes, several financings, have seen so many different things um, given their experiences and the breadth of their experiences and being able to utilize their experiences in the processes that we're undertaking. So um, those are the primarily the differences. So there's a lot more interaction. There's a lot more oversight. And we, we have a lot more communication with, with Apollo or, or sponsors, I should say, than you would in a, in, a, in a public company setting with your board. Because your company's international, you weren't side by side regularly in the normal course of events. So has Covis and going virtual been almost no change or how has that affected, you know, the last year you guys did a lot and it was all virtual. And I'm curious as to, because you were, you know, you're in Toronto and people globally, has it changed or has this just been, that's how it would have been anyway? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, for me personally, I think, you know, I took this, this opportunity knowing that I would, I would be in a North American time zone, whether it was New York or or Toronto. Um, And so for me, like I was anticipating, we have a, we have our head office or corporate office is based at Azug, Switzerland. And so, you know, we are taking calls very early in the morning um, and, you know, and then we get the work that we're supposed to be doing during the day done late at night. 
And that's just generally kind of my, my lifestyle right now. But that was going to be, I think, the reality of the situation regardless. I mean, and that's not any different than um, how it was in my previous roles where there was time zone differences. I, I think that the difference here, though, um, from a cultural perspective is that, you know, I, I still truly believe in the ability to meet with people face to face. I think that that face to face interaction is, is important from a team building cultural perspective. You know, having said that, though, like I interviewed through the process um, with COVID, uh, while and, and it's, I'm, again using that COVID and COVID gets quite tricky, but uh, through the COVID nineteen process and, and or in pandemic, so all you know, virtual interviews, getting up to speed on the business virtually, not having the ability to sit down in a room with a bunch of people to learn the business, having to do all that virtually was obviously um, a learning experience. Um, but was fairly seamless. And I think that like anything, people have just adapted, you know, people that were once all about being in the office um, and, you know, needing to be in the office. I think, you know, generationally we were seeing that change, right? Like I'm of a younger generation. Um, now having said that I was in private practice where it was very important to have the FaceTime. So I always had the mentality of, you know, face-to-face is very important. Um, but I think generationally like millennials are saying, well, no, we can do so much virtually. And I think it's forced people of the older generation to say to themselves, you know what, actually, like maybe the face is not face to face is not needed. And then when you start to supplement that with look at all the cost savings that we could achieve by being able to do things virtually um, because it works, because the the technology is there, um, I think has been like disruptive in a positive sense. And, and what I mean by that is like, we, I think we, we are likely going down the road of taking a hybrid approach where we want people to be in the office, but likely allowing people to work from home certain set days of the week um, with, with them coming in at certain times as well. And I think that's a pro, an approach a lot of companies have taken, including, you know, the big fortune, uh, fortune 500 companies that are taking as well. Like you've heard Google and others going to more of a hybrid or virtual approach. And I think it's it's that time. I think people have recognized that this pandemic has required us to um, interact in different ways. Uh, we have, you know, we did a large M and A transaction. We're building out our infrastructure. We're global. We're building out our our infrastructure globally. Uh, we are, you know, hiring at a, a fairly aggressive rate. We're building out our finance capability. We're putting in new systems and doing all of that virtually, and it's working. And so. You know, I think that that has been a learning lesson, a lesson to learn. But as I say to many people, you still need that time to get into a room together. It just it's, you know, being able to get into a room together in that physical interaction, I think, is is, is still going to be key as we grow as a company. Yeah, it sounds like those are really some unexpected benefits from this new world that we're all living in. Francesco, for, so working for a company based in Europe with arms in Canada and the U.S., Uh, I'm sure you've seen up close the challenges of working with regulatory bodies. Um, What are some of those challenges of working with these different regulators around the world? And how would, do you have any ideas of how they can better their practices with you? I give one experience that I had and it it, kind of tells you about the uh, the archaic, um, uh, I would say the archaic, process or the archaic approach that a lot of the agencies have taken in the past, right? So Ed will remember this, but I flew out to DC a few years ago because we were dealing with a high profile matter that we need to get in front of the FDA. We got, we finally got a meeting with the FDA after months of, of, you know, communicating with them and they required us to be in Washington 
at the agency head offices and sit in a room with them to walk through uh, the issues that we were facing. Um, and you know, I'm Canadian. And as a result of being Canadian, I wasn't allowed into the actual meeting room. I had to sit into the lobby. Um, and again, all that inefficiency and time wasted to just get a meeting, right? And the impact that that has on your business um, is, is it's tremendous, right? Particularly where it's, it's, it's something, it really does have an impact, a financial impact on your business if you don't get the support of the agency. And so I think what the agencies have been and, and, and regulatory bodies generally have been required to do as a result of this pandemic is, is in the same way, use uh, virtual tools um, to accomplish things. And I think that's very, very evident in the vaccine approvals. Um, you know, you guys are life sciences guys, uh, but being in this industry, you know, getting a vaccine approved in a year is, is unheard of. Um, and I think that the requirement for people to meet virtually, to be able to get on Zoom calls, to see the whites of people's eyes on, on calls, to have conversations, to be able to present material through these calls and walk the agency through them has been, I think, a tremendous um, a tremendous um, advantage as well as uh, some progression. Now, you know, there's always going to be the bureaucracy of agency, uh, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's if, if you're not a priority for the agency, then you're always on the back burner. Um, and so that's always something that you have to navigate through, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in uh, the US or, or Europe. What I have found, though, being an international, uh, in international pharma, and even in my experiences with cannabis, because you are dealing with health regulators, um, is that in other jurisdictions in Europe and, and in Canada, I felt as though the regulators were much more accessible. Um, you know, maybe you didn't get the decisions you wanted, but I felt as though they were more accessible. And I don't know if that's just a cultural thing. I don't know if it's just because of capacity, um, but I felt that way. Now, we all know that the FDA is the gold standard when it comes to regulatory rigor um, for many jurisdictions, and many jurisdictions follow the regulatory guidance of the FDA. You know, if, they're, if the FDA is approving a vaccine, it's likely going to get approved anywhere else in the world, as an example of it. Um, but um, the challenges with working with some of the agencies, including the FDA, is, again, coming back to some of the archaic pieces, is just the inefficiencies that exist there and not having the ability to just pick up the phone and have a conversation with someone um, and having to go through, you know, a really bureaucratic process. And I get it, you know, they need to make sure that things are documented for their own purposes, um, but it does create inefficiencies. And hopefully with, with what they've had to endure through this pandemic, they're going to take a different approach to um, how they communicate with, with sponsors going forward. Francesca, you've, you've managed to navigate this at home with a lovely wife and two kids. How have you managed to juggle that? Thankfully, because I have a great wife. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's one. Uh, yeah, so I have a four-year-old and a, and a 23, or I should say 21-month, 22-month-old, um, almost, um, both boys. A very active, uh, you know, they were at home for a while during um, the earlier stages of the pandemic uh, because their, their school was shut down. Now they're back at school. It, it Honestly, um. I've had conversations with a lot of people um, who have said that they found that the most challenging times during their career, and it may have not have been professionally challenging. It was the, the, the um, requirement to juggle the home as well as having to juggle their professional obligations. And so for me in the role that I have, having to have significant oversight and responsibility 
Um, and then having, you know, trying to be there as much as possible for the kids who are at home much more. And I'm at home, so they know I'm home. Um, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, but there's always a silver lining to everything. I was just thinking about it the other day, you know, my son walked into the house from school and I thought about it and I said, in the past year, I've seen him come home, my older son, they're both in school, but he walks in usually first yelling for me. And I said to myself, I've, I've seen him come home or both of them come home every day in the last year. And I've been able to greet them every single day. Uh, whereas prior to that, I was either away for business somewhere remote and, you know, trying to find um, a time that worked for my wife and the kids and myself to actually be able to FaceTime to have a conversation with the kids. And or I was coming home at seven, eight o'clock from work, which was, you know, time for bat. And so, you know, it's it's been a great um, opportunity to to be at home more with the kids Um but it has obviously has, it has had its challenges, which is why you end up working much later into the night because you're trying to carve out that time for your kids because they know you're home. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Francesco, you mentioned uh, before that you recently joined the board of a major nonprofit. Can you tell us about that and what drove you to get involved here? Yeah, so um, just some background. Covis, uh, through the acquisition of Amec Pharmaceuticals, inherited a product um, called Makina, which is a product that's used for the treatment of spontaneous preterm birth. Um, Makina is a product that was approved by the FDA on an accelerated basis. Um, and as a result of that, was required to do an additional study to demonstrate the effectiveness of the product. The second trial was done under Amec's watch without our involvement. Um, and the results of that study came out a few years ago and did not demonstrate an efficacy endpoint, um, which led the FDA to have an advisory committee meeting around what do we do with this product? Like, should we withdraw it? Should we keep it on the market? Should we, you know, allow additional studies to be undertaken? And in October of 2020, shortly after we announced the acquisition of AMEG, the FDA took um, an NOOH action. So notice of opportunity hearing action, whereby they've recommended withdrawal of the product. And so for me, you know, when we acquired Ameg, I just saw Makina as a product in our portfolio. I mean, like any other M&A deal that I've done in my, in my past, in my career. But as I learned more about the product and the passion that our, our team, our legacy Ameg team, and now our COVID team generally have around this product, it's been, I mean, quite remarkable. Um, it's the only therapy, I mean, there's generic equivalents on the market, but there's it's the only therapy to treat this condition in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has... I mean, you know, astronomical rates of preterm birth, primarily around minority women. Um, they're the highest probably in any developed country. Um, and so, you know, hearing the stories um, and seeing the impact that this product has had and reading the declarations that patients and physicians have filed with the FDA, and also having been impacted personally with preterm birth and high-risk pregnancies, it became a corporate social responsibility uh, for our management team to try and keep this product on the market. And so through that process, we were having a number of conversations with different advocacy groups, one of them being March of Dimes. And um, through our conversations with the March of Dimes, I got to know the leadership team at the national level and also at the local level in Boston. And through that process of just meeting people and having conversations, uh, they offered the opportunity of joining the board at March of Dimes. And I thought it was a great opportunity uh, for me to give back uh, you know, I was, I didn't have a lot of nepotism going, you know, getting through uh, my career path. Um, I was the first male in my family to get a post-secondary education. I was the first male 
to even go to like get a master's or get a law degree for that matter. And so, you know, coming from immigrant Italian families that were working class, um, I know the struggles of, you know, what that means to have to, you know, scratch and crawl to, to, to make your way through life. Uh, and uh, I thought this was the, a great opportunity to use my platform that I've been able to achieve and, and help and give back to, to communities in need. That's such a great story. Um, we're getting close to our um, time limit here, but I wanted to ask you a series of rapid fire questions to sort of lighten that are on the lighter side and ask that you respond quickly, if that's all right. Um, yep. So to start off, uh, I'm sure you've traveled a lot of, to a lot of interesting places over the course of your career. What's the best city you visited outside of Toronto? It would be Reykjavik, Reykjavik in Iceland, actually. Why is that? So we, while I was at Concordia, we were flying back and um, it became clear to us that we were heading into a windstorm. And so we're coming from London back to, to Toronto and the pilots turn around. They say to us, uh, we should probably stop somewhere because we're likely going to run out of fuel. And so we stopped in Iceland <laughs> and we spent the night there. And obviously, you know, it was, it was uh, the senior leadership team and a few other people that were with us from London. And we we're like, well, we might as well take advantage of it, get to see Iceland a little bit and go for dinner and whatnot. And it was, it's one of those things where like the most unexpected uh, events become really life, uh, like really memorable experiences. And so that one for me was, was extremely memorable. Wow. That's great. Um, you always hear a lot of people talking about how they don't like lawyers. What's your experience with this? I had a recent experience actually with this. Um, so a few days ago I was getting my washing machine um, repaired and so the technician came in, he was, you know, he was talking to me about different things. And so he just asked me, he's like, we were having a conversation. I was there and I was actually helping him like take things off of the washing machine because parts of it are heavy. And he's like, Hey, you're a great helper. He's like, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a lawyer. And he's like, Oh God, I hate lawyers. Um, and by, by the end of it, however, I was able to win him over. And he's like, you know, I really hate lawyers, but I like you. So I felt as though, you know, that was a win for me. Um, you know, you hear a lot of these stories about, you know, bad experiences with lawyers and astronomical rates that lawyers charge, but we all know that there's a, a service that they provide. Um, and particularly in, in some of the most needing times that you need to turn to them for counsel. So uh, it was, it was a nice thing. It was, it was a, a funny experience. I didn't take, I, I mean, it, I, I took it lightly. It didn't bother me, but uh, it was nice to just have a conversation with someone Um you know, that had that probably had a bad experience with a lawyer and maybe I changed his, his view of lawyers after that, that experience. Yeah, that's great. So Toronto's a pretty big sports town. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite team, favorite sport? I mean, there's, you know, the, the Raptors won the NBA championship in 2019. Um, I've been a big Raptors fan since, you know, they were uh, when they received um, when they got their team, I think back in 1995. So I followed them fairly closely, but, Growing up in Toronto, hockey is king. Uh, so I've been a, a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Um, you know, the Jays won a World Series as well. But I've always been a big Maple Leafs fan. Um, you know, my heart is blue and white. Uh, but unfortunately, unlike the Jays and the Raptors, I haven't seen them win a championship yet. So I'm hoping that maybe this is the year that they do. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we all miss how life was before COVID-19. After this is all over, what's the first thing you're going to do? I told my wife we're going on a vacation for a month um, and I don't care if I have to work wherever it is, but we're, we're going somewhere hot on a beach for a month. 
I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Francesco, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think I speak for Ed and myself when I say it was a pleasure chatting with you and learning about your career and about Covis. That will wrap up this edition of the Legal Innovators interview series. Be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Matt Fedowitz, along with my colleague, Ed Alera, at Buchanan Ingersoll & Rooney. Thanks again for listening.